was on the road about a month ago up at a uh, music festival in Boise, Idaho, seeing a lot of my brethren up there. And uh, I had a chance on Sunday. It was uh, The weather was not exactly completely uh, uh, conducive to uh, going to see a concert, but I had a chance to see a band that was uh, very inspiring for me on a variety of levels. Uh, the rhythm was very good, and they were also incorporating a lot of you know newer and sort of electronic elements to the music while still keeping old school grooves with real people, no drum machine, so to speak. And I was also um, really uh, I enjoyed the uh, my next guest, her stage presence. Uh, she danced around the stage and she sang and you know very interesting sort of lyrics. Uh, I just found it to be refreshing to see. A collective unit going for it, uh, creating original music on the bandstand, and really just trying to do something new uh, in an age of real conformity. And my guest uh, really exudes individuality in uh, in her life and also her musicianship. Laline Saint Juste, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you. You know, I, I, I wanted you to talk about um, really the first time that you felt uh, or how you learned to dance in your own body. Mm. Mm. Um, that's a great question. Um, I think it, I think it was something that I connected to as a young person just on my own but I think it took me time to really understand what it felt like and what it meant for me to be in my body and to and to move on stage and to respond to the music in the way that I do and um I think being able to um study some theater and and you know, just play around with things that had to make me use my body helped me to feel more comfortable. And then as we started the band, um, we really focused on making music that had an upbeat, that had a frequency that really inspired people to move. And so it really paved the way for me to express myself in that way as well. Everybody has like their own, um, everybody walks and has their own rhythm and, you know, some of the musicians, um, especially the instrumental musicians, they aren't necessarily great dancers, but they are dancing in their own body as it relates to, um, the grooves and, and the music itself. And that's how they express themselves. And, and, you know, I just, I'm curious about like how you felt grooves. Did, did, did you, at least when you became a music fan, I mean, did you find yourself sort of being comfortable with your, you know, because, I mean, some people will, you know, uh, some people do line dancing. Uh, some some people do two-step, you know, and some people just have, like, odd meter dancing. And I just wonder, like, you know, for you, uh, you were just, like, floating around almost in a flow state. But I just wonder if you could characterize, like, your... Um, how you what your dance feel is like is it like in four four time is it in odd meter time is it just and how did you cultivate that hmm. I mean I'm pretty sure most of the time it's 
if we're playing in 4-4, it probably is that. Um, and if not, then I can kind of veer off and, and play with the meter a bit. But, yeah, I just, I kind of take a very intuitive approach. You know, I want to just feel in the moment what I, uh, what the music is inspiring. And I've also been performing for you know, many years now, and so I, I just enjoy um, letting it happen. Mm-hmm. I also love to move. I love to dance, and um, and I think every every song uh, has its own energy to it. So, thinking about what the song needs, what the performance needs, um, what will feel good, you know. Uh, so, yeah. What uh, you I remember speaking to you briefly after the show and you were you grew up in Southern California. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk about I mean, obviously, you you enjoyed um, performing or I I, I hate that word, but, uh, you know, uh, acting and dancing and all that stuff. And I just I'm curious if you could recall specifically a time when you were exposed to um, the sacred drumming rituals of of Haiti or where your folks are originally emigrated, where they were from? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think uh, I was really exposed to that as a child. Um, even though my, I think I mentioned to you, my father is a drummer. He mostly played in a reggae band as um, when I was little, um, and we didn't necessarily grow up together. Um, so I, you know, there's there are a lot of feelings. Uh, it's very complicated when it comes to um, immigration and culture and assimilation. And that's something that my family experienced. Um, my mom really wanted us to assimilate and mm. to um, be successful in the, you know, American way. And I think from a lot of trauma, um, kind of didn't highlight or prioritize certain aspects of Haitian culture, you know. And the drumming, um, you know, that's traditional and it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to Vodou, but you know, but it is. (laughs) And so growing up, I didn't have, I wasn't encouraged to look into Vodou. I wasn't encouraged to look into the traditional aspects. But as I got older and I learned on my own, um, I, that's when I started to discover, I I discovered Kompa music first, Mm. but then the traditional stuff came as in my twenties. And I started to sing traditional Haitian music um, with someone named Danielle Breville, who's who's performed with artists all over the world. Um, he's an amazing master drummer, and he taught me about where these songs are coming from. And I just started learning a lot more about my culture, and it was, it, it's been a really beautiful way to, to heal. And I'm still incorporating it into my music and, and all of that. So. Can, you, can you talk to the audience about, I think it gets lost on a lot of people, but... <clears throat> the meanings of of the songs through rhythm, like even one song in particular that this cat who you worked with hipped you to, and w- what the story revolved around. Yeah, so I mean, each rhythm um, is associated with like 
you could think of it as a as an ideology, a, a family of thought, you know, a, a spirit. So, for example, um, maybe there's one rhythm that's for uh, maybe a spirit um, called Dambala, a snake spirit, and mm. that and that rhythm has a certain sound to it, and you know certain dances to do to it, you know certain songs to sing to it. Um, and so each thing is very intricately tied to the other. Yeah. Um, so specifically as it relates to a, a snake song, what, 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 can you go a little bit deeper about what that means? Yeah. So for example, Dumbala is a spirit is considered like a really old, um, overarching spirit in the pantheon. Hmm. So, um, so basically, like if you're looking at, you know, history, obviously Haitians are Africans that were taken from West Africa. So there are a lot of um, spiritual beliefs from West Africa. So there are some spirits like Dambala who are from that West African um, spiritual tradition. And then there are others that came from the actual conditions in Haiti um, that had to respond to slavery and that's a whole other set of spirits hmm. and so those spirits that those rhythms are are considered hot fiery those are the ones that help to to fight for the revolution so the energy of those drums are going to be fiery fast you know dambala is more cool old wise from west africa so that's going to be a little bit more fluid and and, and little slower and things like that so and you just learn the songs and and this is a part of a bigger practice you can perform it like i did you know it's theater but also this is a part of people's spiritual practice as well uh you know i'm curious about when the first time you discovered uh who to saint lovachor was Mm-hmm. And because I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I've done quite a bit of woodshedding with guys that are, uh, I don't say this lightly. I mean, you know, guys that are really, uh, ethnomusicologists, uh, thinking about one in particular, Bill Summers. I don't know if you're hip to him. He's the guy who, um, <clears throat> he did the, uh, bottle whistle on, uh, Herbie Hancock's, uh, watermelon man among other things but he can do he's just he's an amazing dude and he told me about to saint lovachor and and this the story related to the fact that you know napoleon was conquering all these um islands and countries and and here it is these these displaced west africans that were being treated you know, that were, you know, totally being uh, oppressed, Uh, you know, Napoleon could not penetrate Haiti because of mainly the drum, what you were talking about, this fiery, emotional uh, rhythm, and they fought off and defeated Napoleon with sticks and rocks, and at least that's the story that was relayed to me, and I'm just, I know that your mom was, she wanted you to be just sort of a square, assimilated cat, you know, in America, but when did you find out about Toussaint Louverture? Oh, I probably found out, I think it was middle school. Yeah, middle school, junior high. Um, 
I, I can't remember if it was in school. I, I mean, I doubt it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I don't think probably. they teach that in school. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do remember having a conversation with my mom about it and um, and being really proud that that was a turning point for me. To I learned about the Haitian Revolution and right. I was like, wow, this is amazing. The first black republic in the world and Toussaint Louverture and... Jean-Jacques Dessalines, all these, all these major figures, and 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 yeah, I, I felt very proud. So, um, and then I think in high school I went to see a play about it or something. So yeah, it's it, it's I, Haitian history is really incredible. Um, and then of course later on I learned that the revolution started from a Vodou ceremony. Um, so yes, there was drumming, there was singing, and from there the war started, you know, and so music and, and, and that practice, that's very important. Well, it's the one reason I immediately gravitated to you. I could feel that and I could feel where your roots are from. Can you talk about this as Vodou? Um, basically were they being overrun and then, and then they had a ceremony and then started to fight back. It's, it's so hard for me to sort of, you know, in my own mind's eye, try to figure, you know, I just, I see him, Napoleon, pulling up with a ship and being unable to get on the, on the beaches, but was he already actually in Haiti, and then the, after the ceremony is when the revolution occurred? Um, the revolution, I don't know where he was at the time, but I know that in 17, I think it was in 1791, basically, you know, there have been several um revolts up until that point you know um and um but basically they were they were just ready to be done with france and the ceremony was a voodoo ceremony and they sacrificed the pig and and Mm -hmm. saying and it took 11 years um but you know from you know there had been before even napoleon i mean columbus was there there there's just there's just been so much between the island, you know, on the island with the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And so, yeah, I mean, Haiti was very successful. And not only did they they use Wodou as a as a way to to persevere and win, they also supported other countries for their freedom fighters and for their liberation, hmm. you know. They sent a ship to the U.S. for for um, wow. for enslaved Africans to to come onto. They've helped with Greece and their their fight in immigration. They helped with like Argentina. Like there's all this stuff in the history, you know, about Haiti and so it's yeah. I'm I'm very connected to my roots and my history, and I and I love it, and I think it's fascinating, and I and I carry it with me everywhere I go. I, this is my blood, you know. So. You call um, in in a recent album. You've you called upon your ancestors in some of the songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what talk a little bit about one example of uh, one ancestor and and what your intention was for calling upon them. Um. Well, one example is you know I named one of my EPs. Um, after my maternal grandmother, um, her name was Dame Virtuli, mm. and so I named it Virtuli. And um, and so that's just a way for me to acknowledge that 
without them, I wouldn't be here. And and they went through so much. Um, and I'm still learning about them. And ancestral work is something that's in my culture um, as a Haitian person, as a Black person, you know, um, we look to our ancestors um, for strength and for for guidance, for you know, luck, any all the things. So I'm just carrying on that tradition. Can you talk about specifically? I mean, I've done quite a few interviews with people that have left this planet, and I can feel when one person transitions and then another one maybe transitions and they, I can feel when they reconnect, uh, in a different plane. Um, it's very spiritual. It's very deep. Can you talk about, um, if in fact ancestors have, have, have visited you from time to time based on your cultivation of, of their spirit and your longing for them to, um, be acknowledged for what they have been through and, and why you are here? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's signs in communication all the time if we're open to it, you know. And I think in my meditations, I, I, I feel like I get, um, I feel presence or I feel mm. Um, mm. maybe like a... Like a, a a a voice in a way, not like an actual voice, but like a knowingness. Sure. You know, um, maybe just a sense of maybe something's going to be all right, and not, I'm not sure, or maybe just whatever it is, or or maybe I I have a question about something, and I see a hummingbird right at that moment. You know. Um, I think there are symbols <laughs> and signs all around I us. I love it. Yeah, I love it. You have to be, I mean, have you always been open to it? Um, or because your mom wanted you to assimilate, you turned away from some of your connection to your ancestors. The other thing is that your mom clearly was rooted in the history of it, but she didn't want to talk about it. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, she very much... Um, that's very much the case. She talks about it more now, you know, and she used to go to ceremonies and she herself was a twin and that was very much, um, <laughs> very important. So they would have ceremonies for her and, get, you know, all these things that she just, you know, thought this isn't necessarily right. But the thing is, even though my mom was very religious and Christianity and, and raised me um, that way, um, there's a certain magical realism to Haitian culture, period. Yeah. So even so, even if I she wasn't telling me about you know these amazing things, um, I was still getting stories about fantastical things, <laughs> and I was you know. I need to. I can you please lay one. I need. This is why I wanted to talk to you because I mean. Well, some of the stuff is sacred and doesn't go beyond the storytelling of that in the actual event itself. But I just, to me, fantastical is what the Jake Feinberg show is all about. There is no, it, it is it is so there, it is so, the realism is so there. And um, so as a twin, this is a, a celebratory thing. Uh, can you talk about why the, the ceremony related to you being a twin? 
Oh, yeah, it's my mom being a twin. So oh, your mom being a twin. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's a twin, So that and there's lots of twins in her bloodline, so that just means that um, she's, she's a bringer of good luck. And mm. when she was very little, people would come from the community to get healing from her and her brother, and she would pick herbs. And whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Hold on. People, she was how old when people were coming to her? Uh, little, probably like five. Oh boy. Oh yeah. boy. <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh. Now you see that, that, that aura is all in you. That's, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful to hear that because she was a medicine woman. I mean, she was a medicine girl, yeah. right? I mean, she was yeah. young, but yeah, yeah, people, people, it was that. What would you call it? Fantastical realism? Is that what the word you used? I mean, that is so <laughs> Magical realism. Ma- yeah, that, 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 that term. So how did she handle that as a, as, a, as a young girl? Did she, not that she didn't embrace it, but I mean, I have two daughters and they are in their teenage years and, you know, they're just still learning about who they are and they will be for some time. I can't imagine getting that kind of, uh, sort of gravitas to be a medicine, a, me- a healer at that age. I mean, did she, she embraced it or over time, did she realize that for survival in this pretty racist country, she had to, to um, sort of keep it under wraps? I mean, I, I think, you know, white supremacy and colonization had its impact um on her as a child and you know she chose um christianity over um being a medicine girl you know after a while she stopped and didn't do that stuff anymore and you know so it's it's unfortunate but it's still there yeah of course it's still first of all i don't know if she also i would be curious to know if that word if she chose Christianity. I don't know if, I mean, Christianity, right. Christianity was pushed on people of color because of these absurd suprem- white supremacist beliefs that if your skin was a dark color, it means you weren't Christian. I mean, the whole thing yes. was just stupid. So it's like, did she, that, that to me was, do you remember, like at a certain point, does she remember when she had to adopt this monotheistic religion or um it's just fat according to her it was her choice but i do say colonization and and white supremacy for that reason that's right her she she couldn't she she wouldn't be able to have a conversation and say oh i you know (laughs) you know for her it's like this is what was right all along and you know and and that's what it is like i'm supposed to be christian you know she was raised catholic actually but she converted to right. like, Christian and this is what, you know, so, you know, but she still, um, she still held on to that power and she passed it down to me and, um, and, and still very much believed in, in, in the spectrum of Haitian culture. So when I say magical realism, you know, Haitian culture has zombification in it. Haitian culture has people who are shapeshifters, who, oh, know. this is so beautiful, my God. Yeah. This is where it's at. This is, on the yeah. roof. 
I mean, this is so, uh, this is so much in my head. So, I mean, when, was there, is there a memory that you have of her still retaining and demonstrating in an egoless way this power, even though she was operating in a Christian dogmatic kind of society when you were growing up? I mean, to me, like, it would be very hard for your true nature or what your purpose or gift is in life to, even though it's still there, it'd be like, for me, it'd be thrashing around inside of me. It would be kind of uncomfortable. So it would come out sometime. Did it actually come out and you witnessed that, that, that healing power when you were, you know, sort of just still living at home? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that power came out in, in still her, her knowledge of herbs or her, her, desire to heal in certain ways or, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I feel like it came out in those, kind of, or maybe she has a feeling about something or a dream about something or her intuition, you know. Well, like also um, like, like if, if Laylene was, if you were ill or sick, would she do some sort of uh, medicine or some sort of ritual and then you would feel better? Um, she was always good with herbs, so she, if I were sick, she would make, make something, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So this day, she, you know, um, for COVID, she knows, she's like, I have the exact remedy, you know, I get <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, it. she gave it to my brother, he, he got well really quickly. <laughs> oh, that's so, co- so she made her own concoction. <laughs> yes. I love this. Yeah, so it's so deep. I mean, this is the, yeah. I mean... I will say that, like, well, you know, can you talk about, um, I, I just remember I've interviewed John Hendricks and the late great singer and other other great jazz musicians. You know, when they were growing up, and this is obviously predating yourself and myself, but, you know, like Tarzan was, was deemed like this barbarian who would swing through the forest and that was the cartoon portrayal of an African. And, uh, you know, like there was all this caricatures of stereotypes and really pretty racist kind of tropes. And, and then when the cats would actually go and perform in Africa, like they would be in a stadium full of people and they would start to play and you could hear a pin drop. You couldn't, the, the, the audience was so respectful and so beautiful and so into the vibe of the rhythm and the music. And a lot of the Amer- African-Americans that would go over there, they're like, we've been brainwashed about who our people really are. And right. have you been to the motherland? And can you talk, if so, have you, t- can you talk about an experience that was like what, what I'm referring to, where it's just like, you know, I mean, you know, just complete... And utter, uh, um, just where you're like, this is this is the way we've been brainwashed in this country, and uh, because I mean, to me, that we all come from the motherland. That's where we all came from. That's where we all disseminated mm-hmm. from, and right. that is the it's the holiest place in the world. And you know, and there's still so much vibrancy there, and 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 yet there's also carnage, as we're seeing, you know, in Su- Sudan, and people just the infighting and 
and it, I, and I don't even and it's so far beyond my pay grade. So I feel have you been to the motherland? Can you talk about what was inspiring to you that that was not that you could never have picked up on living in this country? Yeah, I've been to Ghana. Um, that's actually where I met Aki, who played the bass in the band. We were both studying abroad in Ghana wow. um, at the time. And uh, um, what I would say, I mean, I was 21 at the time, so I was really, and it was the first time I'd ever left the country. Um, but it just, it felt amazing to be in a place where I saw people who looked just like me, and it was everywhere all around me. And I think um, for your story, it's, yeah, there's a lot that I just didn't know and, and still, you know, it's a lifelong journey to understand, you know, a whole continent or where you come from. But, you know, um, it, it was just a lot that I didn't know. I got I got to be introduced to more African authors that I hadn't read. Um, I got to just be introduced to music I didn't know. Um, food, well, the food was kind of similar to what I have experienced <laughs> but you know it is like there's just so much that's kept from you in, a, in through colonization and white supremacy and so my whole mission is to just keep healing from that and liberating myself and yeah you know can you talk about just a pers- personalizing the idea of um the the how you've dealt what what has been like a traumatic exp- I think it's just important for people to whether they want to hear it or not to know that um, just based on people's skin color um, uh, it's it just it's very it can be very perilous things are just very different especially someone like myself we just we're not privy to it and it doesn't mean that. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody's a racist or everybody's a bad person that's white. It's, it's not what I'm trying to say. It's just, can you talk about what you have li- ha- have been up against in your life, in your adult life? I mean, wh- you know, to me, like, it's just based on what I've done and kind of the travels that I've had. I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I just feel like we're all one human race and so many of the elders that I've interviewed people of color and some of them were tough on me, but that was because I was just trying to find my voice. And I look back and I just am so proud that I was able to, to, con- to connect with these cats. And I just like, even to even right in this moment, what are the biggest challenges facing you as it relates? To, Cause I mean, we're really, it's, it's hotter than ever right now. I, I, I thought we were living I was naive enough to think in college in the late nineties that we were living in like some post-racial society, you know, and, and, and I I just almost feel like we're sort of regressing it right now. And so for you, what has been, what are those little subtle things that you have had to deal with in your, in your entire life? Oh, um, Mm. Well, one, I, well, something I do wanted to say is that I think when we're talking about race, that um, I think it's important for for 
white people to actually say I am racist and like to actually be okay with the legacy and addressing it and confronting it Hmm. as opposed to saying it's somebody else over there. Because if you can say then, oh, I have this worldview, I've inherited this worldview, then you can actually keep on fighting to work on that within yourself as opposed to saying, oh, there's some, there are a lot of racists out there. How, what are we going to do? You know what I mean? So it's like acknowledge. Well, I want to ask you something though. No, I think that's a good point. But what if that person's getting off on how the, on the cultural bias they were raised on your, the assumption is that they're willing to work on their internal issues, but what if they, enjoy, what if they love that? That that's all they right, learn. Well, then, then, then they love it. Then that's that. That's a lost cause. For yeah. Someone like you, yeah. you're you're not, you're not. You know, you want to see things differently. You want to grow. You want to learn. You're a very curious person. So in that sense, then it's an example for other people to then be like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. So to admit your own racism doesn't mean that you're an equal person. It means that you live in a racist society, right? And that there's no other. You don't. You can't be in a vacuum, you know. So that's just what it is, you know. And just being able to then talk to other white people from that perspective, I think that's super powerful. Um, and so for me, the, honestly, it's I. I live my life just trying to live my life. I've I've been a black person my whole life. There's a lot going on in this world about it. Um, a lot of fear. A lot of assumptions made. I've been called things. You know, it's just, that's just what it is. And I tend to surround myself with people who support me. And, you know, I, yeah, (laughs) I just try to be in in my own world. Totally. I mean, growing up in, even though it, uh, you d- have you ever lived anywhere else than California? I mean, California is a little bit of an outlier, especially now even in the Bay Area, um, although it, it's kind of weird everywhere. I mean, have you, I just, I have stories of, this is more men, but, you know, going back 50 years where, uh, I mean, white women would scream if they saw a person of color and say, he, he wants to to cut my throat. And there are college kids that grow up in the Midwest and they go to school and, you know, they've been told their whole lives that if they're in the, in the room alone with a black man, they're going to get raped. And that's just sort of like, you know, that's America. Have you lived in other parts of this country and like experienced that? Because California, I mean, so many of the cats came out with their families and from Louisiana or, uh, you know, the Gulf Coast, the Gulf States and it was like the land of sunshine out there compared to what they had been dealing with. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess in comparison, I've never lived in the South, so um, I've lived in Cali pretty much my whole life. Um, but Cali is a big state, and um, and unfortunately, racism, it doesn't matter where you are. It's, <laughs> Absolutely. It's there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this, this is the only place where I've been called. The, you know, the N-word. This is the only place where I've been, you know, um, discriminated against. So, you know, just because I live 
in California or in the Bay Area or LA. It's like it's just so prevalent everywhere you are. It it might be more acceptable, maybe some um, more explicit forms of racism might be more acceptable in other places. That's right. But it's always implicit and always in your face. <laughs> so that's just the reality of it. But we get to keep building our own communities, and that's why you know it's it's so important for me to to surround myself with people who share similar values. Because I'm tired and I don't feel like I necessarily need to do the work of educating other people. And like some people are down for that work and we kind of split up the task, you know? <laughs> so some people are down to go into that and other people are not, you know? No, so. I mean, it's true. I mean, um, like, do you feel with the session that you should be taking your music into Kern County, places that are definitely more overtly racist uh you know do you do you feel like there's something you know uh Hugh Masekela or who I interviewed or you know some of these guys would go and play Black Panther rallies the one thing I would say I mean we can you know I the Black Lives Matter movement I've always looked at that movement I said the one thing that's kind of lacking is the musical component because there was always like when the Panthers would, would, would have you know um, different types of things that uh, you know there they'd always have there'd be a musical component to it. And I've talked to guys who play Black Panther concerts and things, and I just wonder if you feel like based on your current trajectory, just as you know, a woman, woman of color, a woman who is finding herself in so many different ways with a really cool band. I mean, do you feel like have you attached yourself in some ways to uh, justice movements? Um, I have, you know, in, you know, like I've raised funds for different things I, I've talked about or collaborated around Black Lives Matter, for example, in a show and things like that. And then just in my personal life, um, supporting causes and going to events and um, and yeah, it's kind of, it's always present in some way or another, even lyrically, you know, um, you know, all of this stuff is always present, you know? What, what, can you talk about one particular song in the lyrics and, and how they represent what you've had to deal with in your, in your life? Um, sure. And then, unfortunately, after that, I think I have to wrap up because I, I have another meeting. No, but, okay. um, yeah. I, um, I, let's see, um, other spaces, for example, off of Flames and Figures, that's a song that, um, talks about invisibility and, like, being, um, in a box and, um, wanting to leave all of that. The, the hook is, in a little while I'll leave all of it behind and for me that's just stating that I'm just I, I don't want to adhere to those things anymore and that I'm going to find my own way to define myself and to put myself forward in this world so what what's the name of that tune other spaces other spaces well Laylene, I mean uh yeah I mean 
we could keep cooking here for a while. I hope we get a chance to do part <laughs> part two. I mean, um, I I have been on this journey for twelve years and have basically devoted. Well, one of my books uh, has everything to do with uh, you know the cultural biases of this country. So I will uh, I'll send you some stuff that I've I've been able to the stories that I've gotten because. Uh, but I appreciate it coming from your perspective, and um, you know I find you to be a very uh, divine and beautiful person. So I, I hope that you just continue to stay on your path and and stay safe and continue to learn about your uh, your heritage too. Thank you so much. Thanks for your curiosity and and supporting the band and everything. Much love, my friend. Thanks. Take All care. right. Cheers. Bye. Bye.